Good morning. Yesterday I was at Dee's and Patty's 50th anniversary celebration, and I was talking with Dee briefly toward the end of the event, and he said, now you're speaking this weekend, right? And it occurred to me in the conversation that I missed my chance for a gotcha. I said, yeah, I'm speaking this weekend. I should have said, I am. <laughs> so this morning, I woke up at 5, and I looked at the clock, and I thought, well, I got a little more time. I'll, I'll, take, I'll sleep a little more. And while I was sleeping, I dreamed that I didn't wake up until 11 o'clock. And so God has his own sense of humor. And uh, so <clears throat> I can say with all honesty, it's lovely to see you all here this morning. And at the risk of sounding a little self-absorbed, I'm glad I'm here too. <laughs> Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to assemble in your name. And I just ask that your spirit would minister to each of us in this next hour. I pray that you would release us from distraction and that you would um, multiply the power of your holy word as we consider different passages this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you're a regular follower of the JBC Bible reading plan, and here I mean the old JBC Bible reading plan, the one with the books, then in the month of November, you will be coming into the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, correction, uh, Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel is one of the major prophets and um, with Jeremiah and Daniel and Isaiah. <clears throat> and the book of Ezekiel, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel is distinctive in that it is the major prophet of that list that isn't mentioned anywhere else. He's only mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. So, um, Ezekiel is, was written during the time of the Jews in Babylon, Babylonian captivity, and it's divided into three sections. The first section has to do with the judgment on the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, and the city of Jerusalem. And then the next section talks about the judgment of the nations in that area, Egypt and Syria and those countries. And then there's a little break in chapter 33, and then it concludes with prophecy in the kingdom, in the, um, in the coming kingdom. So it's that chapter 33 that I want to camp on here in just, for just a few minutes. It's a transition passage, and it's about judgment. It's about calling the nation of Israel to repent. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, when I bring the sword upon the land, if the people of the land take a man of their coast and set him up for their watchman, if when the watchman blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and takes not warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon him. But he that takes warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman sees the sword come and blows not the trumpet, and the people are not warned, if the sword comes and takes any man from among them, he is taken away by his iniquity. 
but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, O son of man, I have set you as a watchman under the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear the word of my mouth and warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die if you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man will die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. His blood I will require at your hand. Whenever I come across that passage, I always find it a little sobering. I don't know exactly what his blood I will require at your hand, what that means, and I won't speculate on it here. Suffice to say, it doesn't sound very pleasant, something I'd just as soon avoid. Number one in your notes, the Bible proclaims each generation to call the people to repentance. In Acts 1.8, among several passages in the Gospels, and the, uh, in the epistles, we are called to, to sh- uh, share our faith. You will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, it says elsewhere. Collectively, these verses are called our Great Commission. Along with the book of Ezekiel, the New Testament has its own judgment. It has its own description of judgment. It's found in Galatians 5. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5. So the point in here, like Ezekiel and the watchman, who was to be called into judgment for his failure to do his duty, we also bear penalty, bear consequences, not salvation, but of reward at the Bema Seat judgment in, described in 2 Corinthians. Now, if you ask the average Christian, well, why did Jesus come to the earth? Most people, particularly evangelicals, will say, well, to save lost people. Jesus himself said, I, I came to the earth to seek and to save that which was lost, and that's right. But there's another answer to that question that we don't often think of. In Ephesians 5.25, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might present it to himself. Present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. Titus 2.4, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself. Purify unto himself. A peculiar people zealous to good works. So Jesus came to earth to save the lost, but he also came to build his bride, to build his church. And our responsibility in fulfilling the Great Commission is designed for that reason, to that end. So in Ezekiel's day, God's intent was for the watchman was to warn his people. In our time, the objective of evangelism also is to warn people to repentance, to come to faith, but also to build the church. I think it reasonable to conclude then that Ezekiel's judgment 
is more relevant, that passage in Ezekiel chapter 33 is more relevant to today than it was even in his time. What do you think? Number two in your notes, God does not hold the watchman accountable if the people choose to ignore him. God does not hold the people accountable if the people choose to ignore him. If a man heard the warning from the watchman and he didn't heed the warning, his blood was on his own head. Our duty is to warn, to give testimony, to share our faith. It is God who does the work of redemption. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I have planted, Apollos watered, but it is God who gives the increase. The work of redemption, the work of salvation, belongs to God. John 6, Jesus himself said, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It's not possible for a person to come to faith unless Jesus draw him. Gets into the doctrine of election. And so sometimes people will not want to give testimony because... Nobody ever comes to faith anyway. I I don't do it right. I'm not good at it. Well, that's not your job. Your job is to share your faith and not be concerned about results. The work of salvation is exclusively in God's domain. Now, I know what I'm saying here is not news to Christians. We all understand that we have a responsibility to share our faith. We've heard about it all our lives. A study published by a LifeWay Research company did a, a, a research project, particularly of evangelical Christians in 2012, revealed that 80% of people who attend church at least once a month recognize their responsibility to share their faith. But in that same study, only 61% of evangelicals actually did it in the previous six months. If you expand that population to include everybody who goes to church at least once a month, regardless of denomination, that percentage drops down to 2% in the previous year. Researchers described lots of reasons, but for the purposes of the discussion this morning, I would suggest to you that it largely has to do with lack of preparation. Lack of preparation. Number three in your notes, the main reason most Christians don't share their faith is due to lack of preparation. The lack of preparation manifests itself in lots of different reasons. We're afraid. We're not properly motivated. We don't know what to say. We're afraid we'll do it wrong. It's something probably better left to the professionals. Oftentimes we don't consider it. We just don't care. But the fact remains we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Does it not stand to reason that a principal part of that conversation we will have with our Savior will focus on the Great Commission? Number four in your notes, the most important thing that we can do to be prepared to share our faith is to be tapped into the vine. To be tapped into the vine. I'm going to give to you a few conversation starters here, um, patterned after that verse in Proverbs, a word aptly spoken. But, uh, but the most important thing to consider is it doesn't really matter what my method is, what my technique is, I, I need to be tapped into the vine. 
John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. Now, we, we keep ourselves busy. We really accomplish a lot of stuff. But I think what Jesus is talking about here is anything of relevance for the kingdom of God. Apart from him, we can do nothing. There's two principles found in that scripture. and They're kind of each of the reverse of the other. One is, apart from Jesus, we can't accomplish anything of consequence for God. But the parallel or the opposite principle is if we are tapped into the vine, we will bear fruit. We will accomplish things for God. This next month on September 9, we're going to have five days of prayer. Being tapped into the vine, I often think of Revelation 3.20 about Jesus inviting, uh, Jesus knocking at the door and we invite him in, we, we have fellowship with him. Well, how do we have fellowship with Jesus? We read his words and we pray. September 9, we'll have five days of prayer. It's been my observation that extended time of prayer with God's people is one of the most effective things that we can do personally to be tapped into the vine. Now, we pray for ministries. We pray for all kinds of different things. C.S. Lewis said, I don't pray to change things, to change God. I pray because God, through prayer, changes me. One of the advantages of participating in corporate prayer over a lengthy period of time is being tapped into the vine. Galatians, we understand that being tapped into the vine um, has to do with our character. The, The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and you know the list. But in the Gospels, when Jesus talks about testimony, like the parable of the seed, he's talking about replicating ourselves as disciples, bearing fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. Now, assuming that we're tapped into the vine, that we are adequately prepared to have the conversation, I'd like to suggest three words aptly spoken that you can employ based upon your own experience to initiate a conversation on spiritual matters with those people that God has placed within your influence, your social circle. Three of them, and they're based on the discipline of apologetics. Apologetics is the the discipline of defending the scriptures. And uh, so so that's a subject that's of interest to me. And these three examples I have personally used, and so I suggest them for you this morning. An easy way to bring up the subject of faith. Number Number five, a natural word aptly spoken is expressing your own appreciation of creation. It's an, it's an obvious one. It's a natural one. When I graduated from high school, I went to Grace College. It's in Winona Lake, Indiana, for a year of Bible. It, was, it remains one of the most remarkable years of my life. 
in terms of mixing it up with students who are similarly interested and faculty who are deeply invested. It was a great year. I, there, there are understanding of Scripture and of the Bible that I gained in that year that still affect my uh, understanding of God today. But the school didn't have the degree. I was looking for a hospital administration, and so I didn't, I didn't have that degree, so I had to come back home to Washington. I went to a community college to pursue a degree in nursing. I wanted to have a clinical degree. And so I wasn't looking forward to it because, boy, I'd had such a great year in Indiana. And uh, so kind of begrudgingly, I sat down for my first chemistry class and uh, wasn't looking forward to it. And this old guy gets up, probably close to retirement, and he makes some announcements about the class and some assignments, and then he begins his first lecture. He says, the earth is 96 million miles from the sun. If it were 67, so the earth is here, the sun is here, if it were 67 million, like Venus, he said the temperatures would reach 880 degrees Fahrenheit at some point over the course of a day. And life as we know it would not be possible. If it were 141 million miles away from the sun, like Mars, temperatures would reach 228 degrees below zero at some point in the year. And life as we know it would not be possible. The Earth sits in what's called the Goldilocks band. Not too hot, not too cold. And then he continued on the tilt of the Earth's axis on 28 degrees, its spin, its cycle around the sun, its magnetic shield, and the atmosphere composed of 18 to 20% oxygen. And each time he made some pronouncement, he'd say, and if it weren't so, life as we know it would not be possible. And then he went into uh, animals, and he, talk, and he talked about plants, and he talked about zoology. He talked about bats and bees, as I remember. He talked about the bees and their wiggle dance in the hive and how a foraging bee will come back to the hive and do this little dance. And now we understand that there are pheromones added to that and, and um, frequency signals that sent through their little antenna that communicate to the other bees where the food is relative to the sun. It's astonishing. A tiny little bee. Bats are even more amazing. They don't see. They communicate with their prey. They find their prey through sonar. They emit little signals. And what I didn't realize is if, they, if that signal were to penetrate their own ear in real time, they'd go deaf, make them deaf. So they have a little membrane that covers their ear, and when the signal goes out and then opens by the time the signal bounces off their mosquito or whatever, and comes back to it, and it's happening constantly, thousands of a second. It's astonishing. They went on like that for 40 minutes, this professor did. Finally, the bell rang. Students are picking up their stuff, getting ready to go. He holds up his hand, and the room goes quiet. He says, you know the most astonishing thing of all, the most amazing thing of all, is that there are people, intelligent people, who would have us believe that all of this happened by accident. Now, in my frame of mind at that moment, 
I was smacked in the face. He was a Christian. I asked him about it later. He said, how do you do that in a secular school? He says, I've got tenure. <laughs> what are they going to do? He says, I'm almost out of here anyway. They probably don't really care. Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even the eternal power and Godhead so that man is without excuse man is without excuse man is without excuse you know, we know a whole lot more about creation and about the sophistication and the um, compelling design of creation today than Paul knew when he wrote those words. We know much more about the sophistication and the design of the cell than we did in 1976 when that professor gave that lecture. Design demands a designer. Common sense teaches us that. Effect demands a cause. And spectacular design demands a spectacular designer. Nothing in evolutionary dogma will ever change that. And thus we have nothing to fear as Christians from science. Truth is truth, and all truth is God's truth. So there are other details, no doubt, in your own experience that you appreciate about creation. You, the stars, or trees, or animals, or plants. Something about creation that has affected you personally that becomes a word aptly spoken in conversation with your friend. In discussing an illness, perhaps, with a mutual friend, you could say, isn't it amazing how God has designed the body with the capacity to heal itself? I'm just astonished that people think it all happened by accident. Try that sometime. See where the conversation goes. Another word, aptly spoken, number six, are the words that Jesus uses to describe himself. The words that Jesus uses to describe himself. Imagine for a moment there's a famous person that you respect. Somebody maybe from Hollywood or somebody from... Uh, just a public person that you admire, and think about the reasons why you admire this person. What would happen to your opinion of that person if they were to say things like, I am in possession of all the wisdom that matters. Or, the world's going to end one day, but what I say is just going to keep going. Or, Anybody who wants to go to heaven has got to come through me. What would happen to your opinion of that person whom you respect if they were to make those kinds of statements or to make them forcefully? Would it influence your opinion about that person? Now let's imagine that you're employed by this person as their publicist or their biographer, and it's your job to help make them famous. What counsel would you give them about making such statements? Maybe you ought to tone it down a little. Nobody's going to believe you. This is crazy talk. 
Now, what would it take for you to change your opinion about this person despite these claims that they've made about themselves? What would have to happen for you to actually believe them? Would it be some quality of character that they would possess or would it be something that they would do? Would you believe them, for example, if they made the blind see, made the lame to walk, if they raised people from the dead or if they arose from the dead themselves? Would that cause you to believe them? People say, well, lots of people have made claims to be famous, to be God, to be Messiah, and that's true. Even during the time of the apostles in Acts, there's a guy named Gamaliel who talks about, you know, these, these guys are one in a, in a dozen. Lots of people claim to be someone famous, and it happened during the time of the census, and it's happened all through history. And Jesus himself said many messiahs will come, claiming, many people will come claiming to be messiah in the last day. It's no surprise. The difference is how many people have made it stick? How many people can claim today to have encounter with the risen Jesus Christ? And it changes your life. So try this in a conversation with your friends sometime. Ask them, who is someone that you consider to be famous? And what would, you, what would happen to your opinion of them if they made these outrageous claims of, of really God-like claims about themselves? And the obvious answer is, well, then I wouldn't respect them anymore. Well, what would happen then if they did things to back up those claims? They performed miracles. Would that validate their claims in your opinion? Number seven in your notes, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is found in the impact of the resurrection on his disciples. So thus far, we've talked about creation, and we've talked about the claims that Jesus Christ made about himself, and now we're talking about the evidence of the resurrection as it influenced the behaviors of Jesus' followers, of his disciples. Evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is found in the impact of the resurrection on his disciples. Now consider, if Jesus had not risen from the dead, he would be no different than other philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, even Buddha or Muhammad. Worse than that, he would be a charlatan. He would be a deceiver and would, be, would have been dismissed by history. The evidence from the Gospels would suggest that the disciples were wholly unprepared for the events that happened in Passion Week. We read the Psalms. There are many passages that talk about um, Messiah being killed and risen from the dead. You will not suffer your Holy One to see decay. They're somewhat veiled in terms of their interpretation, but they're clearly there. And the disciples were Jews, and they knew these passages. They should have, as they understood Jesus to be Messiah, they should have been able to hear and understand these prophecies as it pertained to Christ. Jesus himself told them, I go to Jerusalem, I will be killed by the, the uh, chief priests and the scribes, and I will raise, be ra risen on the third day. Told them flat out, 
And yet, all this, despite all this advanced warning, the disciples were taken completely by surprise. During the arrest of Jesus, we're told that all of the disciples forsook him and fled. There's this curious image in the book of Mark where we, we understand that Mark depicting himself fleeing naked from the scene of Jesus' arrest. Peter denied Jesus that he even knew him uh, during his trial. And then when Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection in the upper room, they were shocked, thinking they had seen a ghost. They were completely surprised by the events. So what made these frightened, partially educated people become the founders of the church and of our faith? Luke gives us a word picture in his description of Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus, you can find it in Luke 24, beginning at verse 18. The companions were commiserating over the crucifixion of, of Jesus, utterly disappointed. Jesus appears to them and begins to explain from Moses and all the prophets how Christ needed to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. They're completely oblivious to who, who Jesus is at that point. They sit down, they have a meal, the scales drop from their eyes, and they re Jesus reveals himself to them and, and vanishes. I love the conclusion to the story. And did not our hearts burn within us as we walked along the way, and he opened to us the scriptures. It was that experience, and others like it, and the disciples for the 40 days that Jesus was on earth that became their resurrection story. In his book, Many Infallible Proofs, Henry Morris observes, one thing is for sure, the disciples could not have fabricated this, this story of the resurrection from their own imaginations. On the contrary, they somehow failed to anticipate, even after abundance of prophetic preparation for it, both from the scriptures and from Christ himself. It took the strongest of evidences to convince them that it had actually happened. But once they became convinced, their lives were wholly transformed, and they went forth to live and witness and even die for the resurrected Lord. And that same testimony from similar encounter has been continuing in the lives of Jesus' disciples for over 2,000 years. Number eight in your notes, your personal encounter with the resurrected Christ makes an excellent word aptly spoken, your testimony. Many believers can point to a time in their lives when they had a spiritual encounter. Pastor D has spoken of it from this pulpit from time to time, talking about an experience in Vietnam where he sensed God's presence so powerfully that it validated his respect and appreciation for short-term missions and for prayer walking. My brother, who was a skeptic at the time, describes an encounter, a spiritual encounter, on the prow of the USS Oriskany off the coast of Vietnam. My daughter, Emily, describes an encounter on a dilapidated ferry boat in Freetown Bay, commissioning her um, service to Jesus Christ in missions. For most of us, these encounters aren't even recognizable at the time. But we can look back through our lives through the perspective of history and see how God has influenced and altered the course of our lives through these 
brief encounters. None of them necessarily as dramatic as what the disciples experienced, but profound nonetheless. We look back over our lives and we see the details, even in mundane things, the person you chose to marry or not marry, the career that you chose or the um, hobby even that you had. One such occasion for me was coming to Albany in 1994 and then to JVC, augmented by an experience in Africa where I was utterly infuriated because that country could not provide clean water for its own people. Changed my life. These collectively become your story, your word aptly spoken, an opportunity to give testimony to other people how God has changed your life and a segue into the testimony of the, of the disciples over the resurrected Lord. People do not come to faith by intellectual force of argument. You're not going to persuade people typically by intellectual argument. Now, there are exceptions, and I've seen it myself, but usually people come to faith because of a spiritual need that they recognize in themselves. And you become the vehicle and the source for sharing that need with them. Tim Sanders is a management consultant who uh, makes his living teaching businesses how to be nice to people. His premise is if you're nice to people, it's better for business. He does uh, rubber chicken circuit. He does conferences in places like Chicago and New York. And he gave a conference one time and he concluded, he pulled out his phone, cell phone, and he said, this device is creating distance between people. He says, you can overcome that with your own people by doing two things. One is affirm them, compliment them for something they do, and secondly, by making some source of human contact. So there was an attendee at this conference, and Sanders came back the next year, came to the same place. And this uh, manager had attended the year before, said, you know, I took you up on what you said. It's had an extraordinary experience. Said, There's, I, I, my company occupies the whole floor of a skyscraper. And it's 150 employees. I've probably met 25 of them. I probably know 25 of them. I've probably met 70 or 80 of them but half of them I've never met at all. So I decided to take you up on your challenge. Monday morning, I show up for work. I'm sitting at my desk trying to usher my courage. And I finally get up out of my desk, and I go out, and here's John in this cubicle outside my desk. So I go up to him, and I say, John, your name's John, right? John says, yeah, not used to this. So John, I noticed that um, in your work group that you get into these email exchanges and things tend to get a little hot because people are opinionated and you insert humor into the exchange and it causes people to lighten up and they're able to get through, to work through their differences of opinion and solve the problem. He stuck his hand out, put his other hand on John's shoulder and said, 
I appreciate that, John. Thank you. Good job. John says, you're welcome. <laughs> Manager goes back to his office, sits at his chair, and says, well, that was awkward. <laughs> but he committed to doing that for, the, for as many of his people as he could. About six months later, the manager comes to work. There's this box sitting on his desk, and it's wrapped with this really crummy, cheesy paper, clearly had been wrapped by a man. <laughs> he opens the box, and, and it's an Xbox. That's a toy for kids, a game toy. And there's a card in it. It says, thanks for everything, signed John. So he picks up the card, and he picks up the box. He goes out to the cubicle, and he says to John, what's this? And John says, well, it comes with a story. I moved here from the country. I grew up in the country. I've never been in the big city. I was looking forward to the excitement. And, but I got here, and I got this job, and I was commuting an hour to work every morning, an hour home, and I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't know anybody, and it got boring. And boredom led to loneliness, and loneliness to despair and to hopelessness. I wasn't experienced enough to get another job, and I was too ashamed to go back home. So I went to a pawn shop. I bought a pistol. And I brought it home, and I held it in my hand, getting used to the weight and the feel. And the next week, I put some bullets in the chamber. And the week after that, I put the barrel in my mouth to get a sense of its taste and its feel. And then Monday morning, I show up, and you, you come to my cubicle, and you make this goofy comment about my email. And I recognize what courage that took for you to do that. I thought, well, if my manager could do it, maybe I could try it. So I struck up a conversation with a guy in the break room. Turns out we both had a mutual interest in old books. We're still talking about old books. There was a lady, there's a girl that I saw every morning at coffee. She was kind of cute. I introduced myself. We're dating now. I have a life now. So I took that gun back to the pawn shop. I said, I don't want this. I slid it across the counter. I said, take this back. And the pawnbroker says, well, we don't give cash refunds. He said, but you can exchange it for anything of equal value anywhere in the store. Well, there was nothing in that pawn shop that I wanted, but I saw that Xbox. I thought maybe you had kids. I wanted to give this to you to show my appreciation for what you did for me. You saved my life. You and I will never know this side of heaven, the impact of the risk that we take, the courage that we embrace to extend a word aptly spoken, a word of faith, a word of encouragement, a word of kindness, a cup of cold water given in Jesus' name. We'll never know the impact of that, this side of heaven. We're grateful, Lord, for today. We thank you for the privilege that we have to be here. We'd ask that you continue to bless the service in our giving together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.